You're listening to the Crowdfunding Nerds Podcast, a podcast that will help you succeed before, during, and after your crowdfunding event. And now, here is your host, Andrew Lowen. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another awesome episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. I am your fearless leader, Andrew Lowen, and I'm joined, as always, by Sexy Irish Sean and Rick. On today's episode, we're going to talk about what sort of games do well on Kickstarter. I guess. Yes. There we go. So what sort of games do well on Kickstarter? And the uh, reason for this is because we have regular client inquiries from all over that sometimes, you know, sometimes the games just are a risk for us to take for the most part, because we don't think that they're going to do well. You know, no matter how much marketing dollars you put into something, Kickstarter has a particular target market and that target market does not like every type of game that exists. And so we want to talk about which types of games do well on Kickstarter, which types of games do poorly on Kickstarter, and actually sometimes when great games that should do well don't. Let's start about games that don't need any effort and get and get uh, funded, like any kind of major IP brand like Homestar Runner. Yeah, or The Witcher <laughs> or Exploding Kittens. Right? They could be crap. And they're like, oh, funded $5 million. Yep. Yeah, you know, Skyrim is a great example of hype. I mean, Skyrim is a video game. For those, for those, you know, one or two people that listen to this and have no idea what the word Skyrim is, it is a huge video game IP that it just is an incredible, incredible game. Uh, probably the best single player game that was ever made among the likes of very, very few other games that can compete well, you know, for Andrew, that title. I used to think like you until it took an hour to could you say it with a straight face? I love it. So yeah, so it, it has so many awesome lines that I just can't help but think about. So anyway, this this game was turned into a board game and is going to be launched on GameFound soon. The day it was launched, it was like a little blip of news in a blog post. And I think within one or two days, they had like 17,000 people following, which was massive, massive. And um, that's just simply from the strength of the IP. People freaked out that Skyrim is going to be a thing and they wanted, they, they just wanted it. It's like, I don't even care what type of mechanics are in there. I just want it. Yeah. So I, I, I think that certain themes really I will just call them intellectual properties. It's like a blip at the beginning of this of this conversation because most people are not going to be going to Kickstarter with a huge IP and most people that do have a huge IP of the small subset of people that have a big IP, they are going to know what to do, but you know, I it is possible to to mess it up. Right. And we can kind of talk about that in our section. We have planned when good games do badly, games that should do well in Kickstarter do poorly. So, but what I should but yeah. tell you is if, if your head's in the long game, it shows you the importance of developing a brand and really getting fans that support your work. And that's, that's really key to, to growth and moving forward in the industry of game development. Absolutely. I should almost make a disclaimer to this to this conversation that we have is that um, there are outliers to everything that we're going to be talking about. So you're certainly going to be able to find evidence of games that shouldn't do well, that, you know, all the things that we talk about, they shouldn't do well, but they did. And maybe, you know, 
they're they're not a big brand or big IP, you know, something like that. But there there are always reasons. There's always a method to the madness of why something does well. You know, I, I think about party games and which we'll talk about later. And, you know, generally we we have the advice of like, hey, party games generally don't do well on Kickstarter. But there are plenty of examples of outliers and we can kind of get into that. But in general, when we're having a conversation about the types of games that do well on Kickstarter, I, you know, this is a marketing podcast and that is really like a, for me, it's a marketing question. Why would a game do well on Kickstarter? It's because the target market for that game exists on Kickstarter. People who would want to play it are there and will will back the game. So one of the first things that we look at for our prospective clients, when we're evaluating whether to take on a client or not, is number one, I want to know who would play this. So I want to identify their target market. Who would play this game? And then for myself, how will I find them? You know, how will we, you know, will we find them on Facebook? What interests would they, you know, would kind of signify that that's a person that, that would like this game and are they users of Kickstarter? So, you know, for the most part, party games, or let's say we'll call them mass market games. Those types of people frequent stores or Amazon and whatnot and they don't really they're not really the core audience of kickstarter you have a bunch of alpha gamers that are looking for the next big highly thematic campaign driven 90 mission you know co-op experience and those people in mass market are like hey code names is very complicated that's why they aren't on kickstarter so in some cases if we cannot identify the target market, regardless of how awesome the game is or how interesting the theme might be. For example, there's a game we're looking at right now. It's about ants. And I'm kind of having a little bit of a hard time identifying the target market for a game like that. Who would play this? How will I find them? And are they users of Kickstarter? That's like one of the, you know, basically the three big questions that I ask myself. You know, I get this question every once in a while about like, hey, would you just take on anybody if they're willing to pay you money? You know, and it it comes in varying. It's never asked like that. But, you know, people want to know, are you going to have my best interest in mind? Are you going to advise me or are you going to try to sell me on something? And it is a huge mistake for us to take on a client that is going to fail on kick that we think is going to fail on Kickstarter. It is such a mistake to take on a client like that and then have them stand no chance on Kickstarter. Sometimes if the client really, really believes in what it is that they're doing, we'll support them. But we make it absolutely clear that, hey, I I can't really identify who would want to play this and how I would find them. How would I segment those people out and send advertisements to them to let them know that you exist? It's one of those things that um, it's like our the first reason that we would disqualify a client is is if we wouldn't have any idea how to access the people who care about their stuff. It, it also works in the, the opposite, where we look at a game and think, oh, this has a good chance to do well on Kickstarter, and then you know, we're surprised they don't fund. Yeah, but you're absolutely right. We do try to take on clients who, who we believe is, are going to be um, successful on the platform, because if things aren't going well, it actually takes a lot more work for us to try and work to make things well or try to get it to a place to make it well. And it can drain a lot of resources. It, it's an uphill battle, basically, which is really a sign that a product is not in great demand. Yeah, you know, and we will talk about some alternatives to Kickstarter if a game's not a fit for Kickstarter. It, just because your game doesn't 
fund on Kickstarter doesn't mean that there's no demand. It doesn't, well, I'll put it this way. It doesn't necessarily mean that there's not a demand for it, but it is a concern. You know, it is an indicator. I mean, if there's no demand for your game, you probably wouldn't fund, or maybe you would fund very humbly on Kickstarter and just not do well. A lot, we, we do hear about a lot of uh, situations where, you know, people have games in their garage and they're just kind of sitting there, you know, two to 400 games just sitting there for a long time because they don't know how to sell them. And some of the correct answer to why that might be in some situations is that there's not a market for this. People don't really want that product. It may, you know, maybe it's that they don't want it in its current form. Maybe you just didn't connect with the right people, but you know, maybe. Remember um, listening to a, a Steve Jackson interview. He's talking about game design and he was saying something that he designs like three games a year, but they only publish like one a year. That's because he says a lot of the times they're just garbage games. You know, the, he designs them and like, oh, these aren't really working. And, you know, there's these problems. He just scraps them. So I think as a game designer, not, not all your ideas are going to be winners. So you've got you to love iterations and love going back and improving and optimizing processes. And that's yep. really the, the key to good game design. Definitely. Um, what is an example of a game that has an absolutely clear target market that you were able to like instantly identify who would play this, how will we find them, and you know would would users on Kickstarter like it? I think anything with a fantasy theme that's just straight away just you've carved out a niche, a demographic of people. If it has wizards and swords and sorcery and dragons, you you've pretty much got a uh, you're on you're on the road to success. Let's just say. Mm-hmm. The uh, the one that we did a couple years was it might have been a couple years now or at least over a year ago um, the the Christmas one we did um, a Christmas Carol RPG Christmas Carol yeah. I mean literally it's like oh Christmas and then oh this I mean literally like that one was a tight niche but we were able to figure it out and it had it had demand we actually were able to to get the different um, niches that it, it supported and you know advertise those niches and it actually performed very well. That's really interesting that you bring that up because that would seem like a project that has a significant niche. So Charles Dickens wrote this novel called A Christmas Carol and it became, you know, Disney used it and all. it's like open. I forget what they call it, but if it's if it's old enough, it becomes um, public, domain. public domain. There you go. So um, they designed a Christmas Carol RPG. So first thing we did was we targeted people who liked A Christmas Carol, who liked Charles Dickens. We have a base of um, standard things that we do for Kickstarter. We always target people who have the have Kickstarter as an interest. Then in a separate area, we target board games and then our, you know, specific interest list, which would be a Christmas, a Christmas or Charles Dickens or a Christmas Carol novel or, you know, that kind of thing. And yeah, I mean, it was, it's funny because people who love Christmas and board games and Kickstarter this did really well. It's very cool. And then Charles Dickens, you know, it was a separate interest that did extremely well, you know? Yeah. Another, another game that blew my mind. It wasn't one that we uh, marketed. Um, in fact, I actually did some, I did play testing on it before it went on Kickstarter or while it was going on Kickstarter, it was a disc golf uh, board game and it played just like, you know, like you were, you know, playing real disc golf, but it was, you know, there's some die, die action for for random throwing and whatnot, but I'm like, eh, you know, it's it's an, it's an okay game, but I didn't think it would have like the appeal. 
Well, apparently the target market was disc golfers and every disc golfer known to man actually went out and uh, and backed it. In fact, all these retail stores that like there's there's disc golf retail stores out there. They bought tons of copies of the game. It flourished on Kickstarter. Um, and I think it was one of the first first types of board. I think it's I mean, it might be the only one uh, type of uh, board game type of like for disc golf out there. And so people were just like, "Woo!" you know, something something new uh, in their in their community. So. That one went like hotcakes. That's very similar to Distilled that we just marketed at, in a similar vein. It, it, it could hit two demographics. Uh, their ads did very well when targeting Kickstarter and people who had interest in hard spirits because it's a game about distilling spirits. And it also did well with board game audiences. And then it did, also did well with board game audiences who were also into spirits. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was, and, it, and you know, like the disc golf, it was the first of its kind. It was the first board game that incorporated mm-hmm. the theme of distilling spirits. So that made it very marketable. We, we could say mm-hmm. the world's first distilling board game. And that was the headline that actually did quite well with mm-hmm. the ads. You know, one of the concerns that people have sometimes when they're on small budgets is can you be effective with a small budget for my project and of course the answer to that is often uh, dependent upon the project and how well i can answer those initial questions of who would play it how will we find them are the users of kickstarter right but distilled let's say you know dave beck of distilled amazing game i think it's well over three hundred fifty thousand dollars raised so far you know and it's going to be an incredible success and um congratulations to dave so let's say dave came to us with a budget uh, the smallest budget that we recommend would be $20 a day in ad spend. So if all Dave, you know, which is about $600 a month. So if all Dave had was 20 bucks a day to spend, we would target a very, very niche specific audience that would be the most likely to be super duper hardcore fans of that product so that they would have the highest likelihood of converting. You know, if you have, let's say, $100 or $200 a day in ad spend that you could that you could dump then you could go after a much broader audience because there are you know many more people that are into board games than people into board games kickstarter distilling spirits right you know all all of that together so i i would recommend for everybody listening to this you need to know who your target market is why would they play this game how will we find them like with interests what what do they care about what do they like and are those people users of Kickstarter? And that's a yes or no question oftentimes that is di- some, maybe it's difficult to answer, right? Um, so company like ours would be able to help you um, at least answer some of those questions. The analogy that I, that I use is uh, sometimes you're too close to the forest to see the trees. You're too close to your project. It sometimes is good to have an outside person kind of advising or at least taking a look and, and letting you know what they think the answers are. We talk about the, the types of games that don't generally do well on Kickstarter. What are, what are the types of things you're looking at at a project and that makes you think, don't think this is going to do too well on Kickstarter simply because of the type of game. Can you talk about some of those types? There are really two kind of things. You know, we've got themes and then we've got types of games. So I guess we could talk about both of those. We did kind of dip a little bit into theme, but games that really don't do that well on Kickstarter as a general rule would be mass market kind of entry level games. This would be like, you know, your shoots and ladders, your roll to move, um, your checkers, you know, chess type games, party games, you know, things that are. And this is this is a little bit of a 
to me a gray area because I do see a small user base that is always looking for a cool party game that's 20 bucks or less on Kickstarter, but it's just really kind of hard to 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 overfund and do very well there. It'd be interesting to look at uh, Bigger Cake and see how many of the people on party games are new to Kickstarter, like first time backers or if they're like returning backers. Definitely have to look into that. Yeah, and then a third theme is going to be political games that I just don't see you know, and we're, and when we're talking about political, we're, uh, there's a difference between, you know, there are, there are some games, let's say, that might come out, you know, the 2020 election had a ton of games that were all about Donald Trump being a dictator uh, in some way, shape or form. And I don't think those games do well on Kickstarter. And I don't think that people want to play those games in general. I think that sometimes people want to make a statement and then they gamify a, a political statement, but we play, it's just, you know, religion is the same way where, you know, a religious theme, uh, and I'm one to talk because I came up with deliverance, which is a Christian fantasy, uh, uh, dungeon crawler. But the idea is that people don't want to deal with the politics or religion of real life while they're trying to enjoy a game with friends and family. Like, a game that's going to inspire arguments and, you know, disagreements. You know, if my family members are of a different political ideology than me, let's say I have a huge Trump uh, supporter in my family. Um, if I bring Trump as a dictator and you could be Joseph Stalin or Hitler or Trump, which one do you want to be? You know, it it's going, it's, it's not going to go well. I would much rather bring code names or whatever to a, to a, a holiday than a game like that. And, so those types of games do not do well on Kickstarter as a general rule because people don't want to play games like that. Even if they're in agreement with the ideology, they they don't want to play games like that in real life. And you know, with Deliverance, Deliverance is a great example of an outlier in this in this uh, uh, arena or area because games that don't typically do well totally include religious games. Um, Deliverance is a Christian fantasy, you know, board game. And we raised 800% of our goal, over $314,000, and people loved it of all and no religion, you know, that people were backing it that were um, of a variety of a huge variety of, of religious ideology. And one of the main questions that is, um, you know, just really, really simple, it's a yes or no question, is the game preachy? That's um, a lot of people would ask me that a lot of Christians would ask me that a lot of non-Christians would ask me that. Is it preachy? And um, the answer is no, which is the answer that everyone wants to hear when they're interested in something, you know, that they want to hear that it's not preachy uh, because that's a huge turnoff. A political game can be preachy. It just simply preaches a, an ideology, a political ideology, and people don't want to be preached at when they're playing games. So that's a, a major turnoff. Games that don't typically do well, political games. So let's talk real quick about mass market games because it's not that these games don't do well at all. It's just that they're not going to do well on Kickstarter. So a 500-piece puzzle typically doesn't do well unless it has some sort of huge angle or maybe has you know, a big fan base that's been built up or something like that. Uh, maybe it's a famous artist. You know, Maybe in that case it could do well. Or um, chess that uh but the board is turned into a diamond instead of like a square that 
is not typically going to do well. You know, there are outliers, you know, people do make chess boards that raise tons of money. Um, there was one that recently was incredible and raised over a million dollars that was all about, it was like a, um, a chess board that you could play with somebody across the world. Um, it has little magnetic things that move the chess pieces. So you could have a chess board, you know, in your living room and then your friend in Norway could have a chess board in their living room and they could actually play. That's a pretty cool thing. Very innovative. A lot of people love chess, but that really repackages chess into an entirely different thing. It's more of a technology product than an actual game, right? Mass market products that do well. You know, we talked about roll and move and other things like that. Candyland is, you know, oftentimes games will come out on Kickstarter that are some version of Candyland, but rethemed like roll and move so many spaces and whoever gets to the end wins games that can kind of play themselves. You know, they don't do well on Kickstarter. It's like Monopoly. I mean, how many versions of Monopoly has Monopoly made? And then how many versions of knockoff Monopoly has been made? I mean, I, every time I see something like Monopoly, it's just, it's just a major turnoff. I mean, I'm, we're, we're done Monopoly. We're done. You know, come back in a hundred years. <laughs> yeah. We'll play you again. Backers are very smart. And as soon as I get to a Kickstarter page, oftentimes, even before I scroll down, I can figure out if a game is, you know, just as a, as a fan, as a user of Kickstarter who backs lots of projects on my own, more projects than my wife would probably like, you can immediately identify when a board looks like a Monopoly board. You know, it's, oh, it's different mechanics, but it looks like the Monopoly board. There are the four big squares. There's what you clearly is like the starting square that you probably collect money after you make a full round. You know, there's a jail, other things like that. Um, there's a there's a game that that recently hit Kickstarter that was a kind of a, a Christian version of Codenames. And you had like these these Bible story picture, you know, on the on the back of cards and then the rules were you have to own, you have to try to you know turn over as many cards as you can but you can you know the 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 cardinal rule of code names is that you only get one word to use and then a, a number to pair with it and it had the same rule set um it was just like man you know it's not it's just not going to work it was a kind of a a copy of a of a game so that's another a big turnoff that's very relevant in mass market. A lot of these games are just copies of one another. And so that type of thing will never do well on Kickstarter. Would you find anything about party games? I'm trying to find like a lot of games I'm finding on, on Bigger Cake. For instance, uh, Exploding Kittens. I've Exploding Kittens here on Bigger Cake. Mm -hmm. That allows you to see how many backers were first time backers and how many were, were new. Now, as far as I know, Exploding Kittens was from a webcomic. Am I correct in assuming that? Yeah, it's called The Oatmeal, a very popular webcomic. Okay. So Exploding Kittens is probably the most popular party game on Kickstarter? Yes, I think so. One of, I think one of the most popular projects by far on Kickstarter. So if you're going to use if you're going to use that as like your, your your basis for okay, I've got a party game. Exploding Kittens did well on Kickstarter. Well, guess what the percentage of first-time backers were? What percentage? 43.6%. Nearly half. Okay. Wow. So that's, that's huge. huge. Uh, how, how many first-time backers were on Deliverance? Do you know off the top of your head? Uh, it was about 14.5%, which is actually quite high for the for the industry average. Very high. So I have Throw Throw Burrito. Okay. That's, <laughs> that's technically a party game. Right? Same company. Same Yeah, same company, Oatmeal. So that's 17.1% first-time okay. backers. And if that's the yeah, same and, company, they probably brought a lot of people from the first Kickstarter to that. So that's probably what's tainting the, the numbers there. Uh, I have another one here. 
uh, trial by trolley, which is one of the most that's, popular. I was, that's the one I have up to. At 25.2%. And those games are also all at like major retailer stores now. In fact, I saw Trial by Charlie at Target as well as Exploding mm-hmm. Kittens. Yep. They're all there. And those sort of go with like that disc golf game I was talking about. They had a big, big following on Oatmeal and that I think pushed it. Mm-hmm. And so their, their um, new um, Kickstarter numbers, of course, are I mean, much higher than in an average game yep. uh, in those cases. You know, and Trial by Trolley, I believe, was actually a, a webcomic before this as well. So okay. um, Cyanide and Happiness, that's what it's called. So it also came with – now, this is actually something I had in my notes that were, you know, games that kind of break the mold. Oftentimes, they break the mold for the reason that they have a fan base already. So Trial by Trolley with Cyanide and Happiness, uh, Exploding Kittens with the Oatmeal. I think that one – IP that is going to be incredible that is just yet to release a game right now in this party genre are those web comics with the aliens by Nathan Pyle. Nathan W. Pyle made those really cutesy aliens, um, tr- like trying to act like humans. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Is that the ones that float around Reddit? Yeah, yeah, they they float around all, all over the place, but Reddit's a really popular spot for them. Anyway, I can't remember what it's called, but I think that that's a great example of a lot of people knowing what those memes are and it, it would do very well on Kickstarter if it, if it hit Kickstarter, but that's because people want, people love the theme. It's kind of comes back down to the theme. They love the theme. They love, you know, the, the comics it's nostalgic. Homestar runner is a great example of, of something like this. I'd be curious to see how many people backed Trogdor. I don't know, but I looked at the game and I didn't like it. But of course, it just you know funded like immediately because it's Homestar Runner. Yeah. Um, you know, I backed you... the game and have it on my shelf right behind me, and uh, I've never actually played it um, because my game group is like you know was like oh Trogdor we don't know what that is, but I bought it simply because it had meeples of um, I didn't actually even care for the minis I wanted the meeples of all of my favorite characters. <laughs> <laughs> So you know, actually that only I, had 12.4% uh, of the whole backer pool was were, were new. Here's an outlier. We have a, a game that is connected to a Blizzard IP, World of Warcraft, that came out on Kickstarter. It's called Game Vaults, the World of Warcraft edition. And it, it is four, four days left to go and only has 63 backers. So I think there's, you know, there's an example as well of just because you have a big name or brand and you slap it to something, doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be an instant success. That's right. because all those people are moving over to Final Fantasy right now. There's that big, you know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, the end. Wow, killer. I think Asmund the- Gold was the wow killer. Yep, yep. He he killed it. They're all. In fact, uh, I was playing Final Fantasy last night. It was around almost midnight here uh, in, in in the West Coast, mm-hmm. and I had to wait in in in, in queue. I had a queue. I'm like, what? It's like mm-hmm. late. No one should be up. You know, England's asleep. You know, Asia's asleep. Well, it's their morning. And then, of course, you know, it's late here. I mean, who's there's a lot of people playing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If actually, if you look at Google Trends for uh, this was fantastic. Sean actually shared this with us and I was blown away because it looks like Final Fantasy 14. The MMO game is more popular than World of Warcraft right now on Google Trends. Uh, if you go to Google Trends, you look at the uh, game World of Warcraft you know, and the number of searches related to that versus the number of searches related to Final Fantasy, it was 
the day that Asmongold started, um, he, he's a popular twi Twitch streamer, uh, started to play this. Tons of other people jumped on board and started playing. And Twitch, you know, the Twitch streaming of Final Fantasy really changed it around. People were blown away by the game. And I guess what they did with uh, recent expansions was really impressive. And it just needed a public spotlight, right? And so you look at the trend for searches and Final Fantasy fourteen, the, you know, the uh, MMO, it it's like right now double the amount of searches that World of Warcraft has, which would be absolutely unheard of even one year ago. Yeah, the reason I shared that video because he he gave an interesting insights just about video game marketing, and I you know, we'll include this in the show notes, right? This this is it. Yeah. I think this was extremely interesting. Now some language so, some language warnings. He he does have a bit of a party mouth, as we would say, <laughs> but it was very he has anyone very with one hundred thousand or more active <laughs> subscribers does. <laughs> But he has some very good insights. And the reason I shared it is because really, I suspect we're seeing a resurgence or a resurgence in the board game and tabletop spaces because people are dissatisfied with video games. A lot of, you know, video game design has become very monopolized by huge corporations who only care about, you know, profits and sort of the passion of the industry is gone. And a lot of those people, I think, are moving to the board game space where that that's still there. And the danger for the board game space and tabletop space is that it continues to grow and then it attracts a big corporation. So you just want, you only care about the bottom end, right? So that's why I shared it. But he gave some very interesting insights about really caring about the opinions and thoughts of your customers. And it's basically what it comes down to is that when you, you know, you're a small game studio, people are very passionate about what they're doing. They really care about the fans. And what it seems to happen is that as these companies grow from that success, there's, there's more of a divide between the fan base and the developer mm -hmm. and uh, the culture and the companies change. And I think it, it negatively affects the, the games and the enjoyment people have with the games. So it's something yeah. important for you as a, as a Kickstarter hopeful to keep in mind that your, your community is so important in developing that relationship with them through Kickstarter. It's so important that you build that relationship and you listen to your right. your customers. One of the major things that we that we preach to our to our customers is that the ad is just the the entrance, but it's your job, or rather the job of the system, the emails that you send out, and every every interaction that you have in your community to warm those people up from kind of a cold lead that's interested in like getting more information to a super duper hot. I'm going to back this game no matter what. Mm -hmm. But that's that's really what you want to do that's what the marketing system needs to do and you know actually speaking about uh world of warcraft and uh, you know the um what asmund gold was talking about the innovators the true innovators that are that make games because they love making games they love innovating they love um delighting their customers and, with an experience because they are gamers and they they you know treat their customers just like they would want to be treated these types of people tend to get pushed out by corporations that want to make money from people. So there's this, you know, the, uh, the, the kind of the premise of this video, if you, if you want to watch it or, or don't, the premise of the video is that when big corporations come in, they're concerned with profits and they treat gamers as the cash cow to milk versus the person that they would want to be treat. You know, they would want to treat them as, as though, you know, they're making a, I guess they're, switching people from 
the same class to a to a lower class of people and just trying to sell to them i guess is the best way that i can put it as a different cast of lower people um the love of money is the root of all bad games <laughs> yes exactly exactly so anyway the the idea behind this article that i wanted to share is um chris metzen one of the original uh, blizzard employees and uh, world of warcraft um pioneers he started this company called Warchief gaming and he moved into the tabletop space. He designed an RPG, which was kind of a, you know, a five E adventure in a world that was like basically their homebrew campaign. It's called the Robberos coils of the serpent. I think that it's one of those games that really surprised me that this guy would go from, you know, if you have piles of money, you know, he's an innovator, a pioneer, um, he's actually moving into the tabletop space from a AAA highest level that you can possibly get in the video game industry. And I think that that's a really cool indicator for the future of, you know, board games. But I just, I think that, you know, you've got people that are making games for the love of games. It's a great lesson, great lesson for future safety, financial stability of, of a company. I don't know. And I think you know, one thing we probably should mention is that it's, it's important to listen to your customers, but the customer isn't always right. And maybe, Andrew, you can speak a bit into this in dealing with you know, fans of deliverance, but would it be true in saying that your fans of your, of your games are very good at pointing out problems, but they're horrible at finding solutions? So you probably should take their <laughs> advice on board when it comes to, okay, well, they're all saying there's a problem. I should take that on board, but I, maybe I shouldn't listen to their solutions just because, you know, they they're they're ignorant to be to be frank uh, of the game design process or maybe of everything that has to go into it. So their suggested right. solution actually is realistic, and that's, so it's something you need to take with a grain of salt. Yeah, you know the um, the idea that you shared is is exactly right. Is the the uh, premise is that the uh, your fan base they are the best people to point out problems to you, um, and they are right on on that front. If they say oh, this game doesn't feel fun. They're probably right if they're like, oh, this feels clunky. This particular mechanic feels clunky or I didn't understand this or that. That is definitely very important feedback, critical feedback. But if they're like, you know, gonna, oftentimes when they suggest a solution um, in the past, it is typically to like add some sort of extra rule, you know, or add an additional component or, you know, it's like, well, what you should do is like change all your minis to metal or whatever and like quintuple the cost of your game I, you know it's just not <laughs> yeah uh, they, they don't really think about all of the all of the things or maybe it's like hey you know you should add like an extra you know stat to your game or you should change all the cards to you know something else and uh you know add a bunch of dice to your game they they are going to make suggestions that um might not be the best fit in some cases actually it's an i mean i've had cases for deliverance for example that have been absolutely incredible bits of feedback where they made a suggestion that was like oh my goodness we need to do that um the implementation every single time though has been something that i have had to kind of work through um their suggestion for implementation has never been quite you know correct but absolutely they are the best people to identify a problem and this actually would really help for you know a game that you thought would do well that didn't the first thing you should do if you launch a Kickstarter and it didn't do as well as you hoped is you should ask your fans, what was the prop? Like, why didn't it do as well as we all hoped? They will tell you 
they'll tell you like, oh, the shipping was ridiculous or this or that. But they're they're not going to be able to tell you how to. I mean, they're just going to tell you lower the price, you know, or whatever. It's like, well, it's not that easy, right? It's a little bit more complicated, but they will tell you what the problem is. And I think that that's probably the most valuable feedback that you could possibly get, you know, when your game does badly on Kickstarter. And Andrew, I, I know that when when people were playtesting on Tabletop Simulator, after they played, you sent them a, a form which they could fill out and give back, you know, what they thought about the game. So that's that's something you probably should be doing uh, with your your pre pre marketing campaign is when people are play testing it on tabletop simulator or whatever, if it's a video game, it's like a beta or whatever, is to get to to leverage that opportunity while getting feedback from them and you might be able to make some changes before you go live to Kickstarter. That might be helpful in pointing out some problems that you, you didn't think about. I think the moral of the story I'm gonna I'm gonna you know, cause I'm an SEO wizard, I'm gonna narrow it down to like more uh common folk here um is to treat your your game like it's a band you know these 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 people who are you know there are famous musicians that we listen to all the time they just didn't instantly become famous you know they started in their dive bars they started you know in these small events that no they're they're there because no one wanted to pay them and you know they they wanted to you know advertise i mean you you start small you go to those you know if it's a game you go to those conventions you go to those street fairs you go wherever you can go that will let you in and then you start growing a following and then you start, so you get your fans, you get your groupies and then you work your way up from there. And then eventually you'll become the uh, opening band for somebody bigger. And of course people will, will find out about you because you're being associated with a genre or a theme. And of course that will get you growing. And so like when you're ready to do your rock star concert, you have to be prepared and already have that fan base. You already have to have your groupies and they'll help you out along the entire way. Like like you were saying, if there's a problem with a game, they will let you know. But they are not your band. So it's not up to them to fix the issue. It's up to you to fix the issue and to figure out how to fix the issue. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's right. And one other thing I'll, I'll say is that about Deliverance, I really started with a, uh, a hypothesis that people would want this if they could play it, they would see it, and they would get excited about it, and, and they would want this. I don't think the market knew that it wanted this game before before it actually came out. I think that if I were to describe a game like this to somebody, in fact, every major publisher turned me down before we went to Kickstarter. And then after Kickstarter, there are major publishers looking to entirely buy the licensing rights of Deliverance and buy the buy the intellectual property from me because they now see that it's that it's popular. Um, and that people want it. I, I think back to Henry Ford, you know, the, he said, um, if people asked me, if I gave people what they wanted, they would have, they, they would have asked me for faster horses, you know, mm. and they didn't know what was possible, right? The iPad, Steve Jobs and the iPad, like a gigantic screen, you know, who would have thought, you know, you've got a uh, Zoolander, you know, the character Mugatu, he has a cell phone. That's like the tiniest little phone <laughs> in the world. That's what people thought that you know the future would be like is like you have tiny little devices and in actuality our phones are just bigger and heavier than than ever right i mean all of the innovation happening a lot of the time people don't realize that they want it until after they experience it after you make it so uh in some cases like with me and deliverance for example i had to make a bet on myself and 
know or believe that, hey, what I really wanted to exist, I believe that there are others that feel the exact same way. And I think I can articulate this solution to a to a need that's out there in a way that people don't think is possible. So of course they're gonna tell me, don't make a Christian board game. That's not going to do well. But if I do it in this way where, you know, we don't focus on the preachiness or the education or whatever, but we just simply use the world as kind of the lore base, or rather the the lore base as the as the backdrop for the world, and then tell a really great story and have really, you know, innovative mechanics. And that if it's really fun, I think that people are really going to like it and crave the theme. So that's kind of what we're seeing, you know? And um, so anyway, I think that for all of those out there that are innovating and finding resistance to your innovation, take a bet on yourself, right? I, you know, if you believe in it, that's, that's the whole idea behind Kickstarter is show people what you got. And if they like it, they'll jump on board. Before we wrap up, it'd probably be good to talk about another pitfall that game designers can get into is, is when they, they use the mechanics of their game as a selling point. So they say like, this is a deck building, resource management, blah, 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 game. And like the reality is most people don't care about that. That's probably, that's probably terminology that other game designers will appreciate. <laughs> but I think yeah. when, it comes, when it comes to games, most people only care about the theme the art and is it fun so you need to be able to clearly show the theme show that you have good art they demonstrate that people have play tested it and said that it's fun that's basically the the brunt of your marketing right there obviously you can mention the mechanics but sort of diving in has that been like the forefront of like why you should get right. this game the tip of the spear yes not yeah. not going to impress people right sean i have a a deck builder with hand management and set collection. Would you like to try? It's like, <laughs> what? I don't even think about when you have like a friend come over and you're showing them your board game shelf, as a lot of us have, and you say, which game do you want to play? They say, what's that? How do you describe it? You don't say, oh, well, that's a you know deck building, resource management, whatever. You say, oh, that's a game about dragons and wizards, and you kill them with lightning. You know, it's like, yeah. yeah, I want to play that. Yeah. That's that's how you describe it, and that's basically how you have to describe your game. <laughs> But it's really all about the experience. Like, I, I'm not going to tell people, well, you get to like add new cards to your player board and you get to, you know, move your piece across the map and then uh, roll dice and that kind of thing. I'm going to say you're an epic angel that levels up and you move across this town slaying demons, you know, and that's how I would describe the game, right? Two very, you know, they, I'm really saying the same thing um, with both, but one is a lot more fun sounding than the other. And. Oh. I think that it's um, the way that the mechanics kind of integrate with the theme. Like when you level up, you do get to add new cards to your to your next year player board and other things like that. And and when you you know attack, sometimes you get to roll dice for for things and whatever. But it's yeah, and, it's definitely something that you want to <laughs> lead with theme over mechanics. Andrew, give me give me your one sentence sales pitch on Deliverance. It's a Christian fantasy dungeon crawler. There you go. Uh, where you angels are fighting demons with the saints caught between. Yep. Theme and then secondary is mechanic. Um, yeah. <laughs> and theme again. For the double weapon. Yep. Theme again. It's a theme yep. sandwich. It's the sandwich. <laughs> yep. The theme sandwich. You heard it here first. So let's talk lastly, you know, when good games do bad and then alternatives to Kickstarter for games just not a fit. I'll mention alternatives real quick. Have someone else publish it that has an audience. If your game wasn't a fit for Kickstarter, if you can't get it funded on Kickstarter, maybe you need to go find a publisher with an audience that 
would love that type of game. Kickstarter is not the only option to get your games sold. Retailers around the world sell tons of board games that never make it to Kickstarter. And you, you know, you get, you get into retail, like direct to retail in a lot of ways, but it just doesn't, you know, you're not able to do it by yourself. So it's totally an option. I won't even, if your game doesn't fund on Kickstarter, you will not fund on any other crowdfunding platform. So it's basically alternatives to crowdfunding if your game is just not a fit. When games that should do well do poorly, you know, we kind of address that, you know, World of Warcraft edition thing. So I think it's like 3D terrain more than a, than an actual game. It's very possible that you have an awesome game that does very poorly. The reasons typically boil down to either a poor graphic design job on the Kickstarter page or uh, poor shipping numbers or other, you know, maybe the Maybe it's very expensive or maybe it looks like you're biting off way more than you can chew and you, your price is way too cheap. And in some cases, it's also like the gameplay doesn't look fun. It just doesn't look interesting. So there was a game that I think I've talked about it a couple of times, maybe at least once on this podcast before, but a game that I saw that that was you know several years in you know around conventions and other things. And I thought that they were doing such a great job and they ended up going to Kickstarter and they totally flopped because their shipping prices were for, at the time quite outrageous. Also, their box design was not normal and a lot of people didn't like it. And they, instead of listening to their, their community that was like, I don't know about this box design or whatever, you know, they, or, you know, having a solution to, region friendly shipping which they really needed they were like no we think that it's going to be fine and i think that uh, that's a great recipe for disaster the game funded the game funded about 200 or 250 percent but they did that on day one and then they had this epic like people canceling pledges for the next 30 days until they finally fixed their problem and ended up having a, a, a small uptick at the end and they kind of ended where they began practically. So poor graphic design, like if you present the game in a poor way on Kickstarter because you're looking to save a little bit of money, I think that's a huge mistake. You really do need a professional to lay out your Kickstarter graphics and other things like that. If your shipping isn't worked out, you know, that's a huge problem. You know, people don't want to pay tons of money for shipping. And if you're not able to come up with a solution that's reasonable or at least get your get your fans to buy into the shipping, it's like, hey, guys, the you know, like right now, the the uh, container issue is quite uh, you know expensive and it's going to be more than my quoted shipping. You know, we're going to have to charge a little bit more. That is something that you have to get them to buy into. And if they don't, they're not going to back your project. So I think that these are problems that are all resolvable. There should be no surprises. A good game should always do well on Kickstarter. And if it doesn't, it's oftentimes the, the creator's fault. And that's all the time we have for this week's episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. For more exciting, nerdy action, as well as to access all of our podcasts and resources, visit us at crowdfundingnerds.com. And if you need a little assistance with your uh, upcoming Kickstarter, feel free to go to nextlevelweb.com forward slash Kickstarter and we'll help you out. And we hope you have enjoyed this week's episode. And as always, stay nerdy, friends. Oh, yeah. That'll be our <laughs> outro sound effects. <laughs>